Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. So I'd like to dive in first with a shout out to all of the moms out there. We just want to say we really love you so much. And today, everybody here is on Team Mom. Because moms, you are the true superheroes around here. And we all know that. So if you are sitting there and you've not yet said hi to your mom, told her and gave her some appreciation, you pause this video right now and you send her some loving. Great. So moms, we really appreciate you, we love you, and uh, we just want to celebrate today with you. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Now on a day like today, I thought it would be really fitting to make the sermon topic something that I think relates to all of us, and that would center around kind of the day that it is today, and it is family. Mother's Day and Father's Day is always a day that we think about our families, and what we're going to do this this day is we're going to dive into the topic of family and start looking at what the Bible has to say about our families. Now, I know that even though this is a very relevant topic to all of us, there is a piece of diversity that makes this topic so difficult to speak about because even though we can all relate to family, we all have different experiences when it comes to our family. I mean, some of us come out of blended families. Some of us come out of more traditional families. Some of us were adopted into a family. Some of us are even in between families at this stage. And you're maybe a single mom or a single dad trying to figure out how to make this thing work. So just in order to kind of get us all on the same page, I thought there's maybe just two things nail it down and bring it down to two things that I believe we all have in common when it comes to our families. So the first thing that we all have in common is the fact that when it comes to our origin, meaning our original families, our families of origin, we didn't really have any choice in the matter. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this said, but there's this saying that goes as follow, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And I know some of us would really want to choose our families. And in fact, isn't it interesting to see that many of us, when we were in primary school, we actually did choose. Wasn't it true that at a certain stage, you really hoped that you could be with your best friend's family? They could be your family. They were the cool family. They were the guys you really wanted to hang out with and just spend some more time with. I'll never forget one of my best friends being at their house the greatest thing that we could always do while being there is we could actually sleep outside on the balcony under the stars. That was just mind-blowingly amazing. So the first thing that I believe we all have in common is even though we didn't have a say in it, we're still part of this family. So we didn't have a say in our origin of family. The second thing I believe we all have in common is that you and I, we both think that we are the smartest people in our family. And I write when I'm saying that. I mean, there's just no relative that can even come close to the intelligence of this guy. Ain't it true? 
I mean, for some of us, it's actually like, I just can't wait to have a family gathering, get everybody together, and just tell everybody some of my perspective, because if they will know what I think is best, like looking, listen, you, you need to start getting your life together, start brushing your teeth, and you, if you're late ever again, and you, I mean, it's just almost like the whole package deal, you need a whole makeover, if you can just sort that out, we'll be happy, <laughs> and I write when I'm saying that, isn't it just so true? that we sometimes think we are the greatest. And with these two things, even though they are the two things that I believe we have in common when it comes to our families, it's also two of the things that I think really makes family very challenging. Because we struggle with this. When I use the word father, the emotion that comes with that word is so diverse. Everybody has their own background, their own history, and their own journey to that word. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to dive into what the Bible says. However, when we talk about the topic of family and the Bible, we kind of stumble into a bit of a problem at the start. Because if today we would open up the Bible and we ask, what can we learn about families and the Bible? We really don't have so many good examples we're going to be struggling with quality examples all around. I mean, even Jesus, just can you imagine? Have you seen Jesus somewhere? No. Have you? No. I mean, they left him at the temple. That's what happened. I mean, he's 12. How can you do that? That's like worst mom and dad award for the year. That's what's happening there. And I mean, the Old Testament, if you look at where it began, Adam and Eve, the first homicide we have in the Bible is a brother killing his own brother. The first civil war we see in the Bible is between a father and his son, David and Absalom. I mean, people are killed all around because this family fiasco and this fight just couldn't be settled in any other way, it seems. There isn't really a lot of great examples. I've not even touched on Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, what a mess. And that family business and family story. The thing is, we don't have good examples. We might squeeze out a few quality principles from the Old Testament, but we don't get a lot of good family examples. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, it's a totally different story. In fact, it is super radical. It is so countercultural. It actually makes you uncomfortable when you really understand the context in which these words were said. But sadly for us today, this is a little bit difficult to understand and to grasp because some of the stuff that I'm going to be sharing and that Paul's actually writing about based on what Jesus taught is kind of common sense in our world because the biblical worldview has permeated the world so much and in so many areas already that some of the stuff that we say here today is common sense. But in those days, in that culture, in that setting, it was absolutely mind-blowingly radical. And especially when it came to women and children. So I just want to color in the picture a little bit here. In the Greco-Roman world, women were only seen as objects that you can owe. That was what a woman was worth. She was actually worth just a little bit above your cattle because she could give you a son, which cattle couldn't do. So the reality was women didn't really have that much worth, and they were treated as such. And when it comes to children, it was even worse. I mean, you didn't even give a child a name before you were certain they're going to live and survive 
the mortality rate was just way too high. It was really common practice to leave unwanted babies on the side of the road, in fact. The reality is, when it comes to this, it was the Christians that stood up and started orphanages because they placed a value on human life. It was legal in the Greco-Roman world for a dad to actually kill his child before the age of 12 because children were only seen as human beings after the age of 12. Can you see how radical Jesus is when he stands up even for a prostitute, a woman? And even more than that, he asks the children, he tells the people, do not let the children run away. Bring them to me. I want them to come to me. You know, when we read that, we think like in our world and in our mindset, that is, oh, that is great PR, Jesus. Wonderful public relations. You look so good. Oh, cute. You're looking after the kids. In the original audience context, they were so offended. They were like, what? Jesus? Do you want to allow kids into this space? This is the space for adults. We don't learn anything from kids. And Jesus replies, well, it's to children like this that my kingdom belongs. That is his words. It is radical. And I want us to look at some of the radical writings that Paul produced while applying Jesus' teaching into a Greco-Roman family. Now, Paul is brilliant. He firstly starts and he elevates the status of men, of, of women and children. I mean, he is busy making waves in the Greco-Roman world. Guys, his tweets is going viral. It's going everywhere. Everybody knows about it. In fact, we're still reading about it today. That is how powerful it is that what Paul write and instructed a Greco-Roman family with when you keep what I've just mentioned in context. So let's dive in. First, the children. We always love this one. In Ephesians 6, he says the following, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And I know here it is where dad and mom is like just giving a little elbow there to, to little brother or, or big brother on the seat saying, yeah, you heard, you heard. We love using that one. Well, kids, just hold on a little bit. I'm not yet finished. We're diving into the next one. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I know, mom, you're going to look at me and you're going to tell me, well, Lorraine, you haven't met my husband yet. You do not know him. To which I'll reply, just wait for the next verse. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, it's interesting to see that Paul is actually pointing out to husbands that they should not be harsh to their wives. I mean, this is one of those moments that you think, well, it's common sense. A husband should be good to his wife. He should be very considerate and looking well after her. Why would Paul even think about instructing men? Well, in that cultural context, it was normal practice to be harsh to your dog and be harsh to your donkey. So you were just harsh to your wife. That's just the way it worked. It was normal practice. Paul goes on and he starts speaking to us as fathers, and I'm talking about myself here, and this is probably one of the most difficult ones for me, because this is probably the one that I fail at many times, when he says, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. 
Now, sometimes I think we don't really capture or understand the weight of what Paul is saying here. And we so easily, without even intending to do it, with having good intentions, we can just like overstep on this so quickly, dads. I mean, every time you may correct your child, it might be for good reasons and it might be good discipline and you might be able to name them, but sometimes we do it in such a way that it just leaves them with the weight on their shoulders that just leaves them discouraged. Dad, I can't do this. And you leave them in a space where they do not see themselves as worthy. And that's kind of like Jesus, do not embitter your child. Do not do this. And in fact, Paul is writing to dads because he knew dads had the tendency of turning children into like their property and slaves, like doing whatever they want them to do, just work for them the whole time. And Paul says that stops now because you know what? Your wife, your child, Jesus died for them. They have the exact same value as you. That's what he's busy saying. They have the exact same value as you. And you need to treat them as such. Here's a summary. Just quickly getting it out there. The summary goes as follows. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't irritate your children. If you've got that right down to a square, we can just pray now and say goodbye. I know it's not going to happen. I know there's some of you guys that saying, well, Lorraine, isn't that just a little bit ideal? I mean, we live in the real world here. Down here, things just don't go as smooth as you've just described them in your little summary. And you're right. You're absolutely right. In fact, it feels almost like the standards that Paul is setting through the teachings of Jesus is so ideal, nobody can get to them. And when we look at the life of Jesus, he was so known for this. He was known for pointing out and teaching standards they were so high and ideal, probably nobody could reach them, but yet he never kept anyone or condemned anyone for falling short of those standards. How does it work? What's happening there? I mean, he would like be, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, you've heard it said, we all know that statement, you've heard it said, um, you should not commit adultery. Now, when we think about that, everybody in that time and day knew that adultery would mean you would take another woman if you're a man and you would go and commit adultery against your own wife. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not adultery. Adultery is to actually sit down and just think about another woman with lustful thoughts. You know what happened in that moment? In that moment, Jesus made every single man in his audience an adulterer. I can only speak for the men now. But I'm pretty sure that was the reality. And every single man to come as well. I mean, can you feel the tension just hearing what I'm saying when we're listening to the words of Jesus? It is super high standards. And sadly, for many of us, we try and deal with those standards. When we read it, we like can't try and downplay it. We want to bring it down to a realistic world where we can actually live up to some or other form or way of those standards. And we do it in interesting ways. We would like compare ourselves to other people thinking, wow, I'm just a little bit better than that guy. So obviously I'm doing okay. I'm not doing that bad. 
yet Jesus is like, no, guys, the bar is up here. That is the standard. And if you were wondering why, I think it's because Jesus came to truly reveal who God is. And a part of who God is is that he is holy. And the standard of his holiness is way higher than what any of the people that served the God that we all know today as sending his son Jesus they were just so below par. And Jesus like, guys, you think that is God's standard? Let me just put it up there. You know what happens the moment we embrace God's holy standard? Is not just because the standard go higher, but the grace goes deeper. And not only does the grace go deeper, but the forgiveness becomes greater. That is is the goodness of our God. You see, if you would mess up and, and if you're one of those guys that was struggling with what Jesus just said about adultery and you would walk up to Jesus saying, Jesus, but what's going to happen to the guys that, that have committed adultery on your standards? What's going to happen? Nobody can make it. What are you going to do? Jesus would live, look you and me lovingly in the eyes and he would say, well, I will forgive you. That's what's going to happen. My grace is deep enough and my forgiveness is great enough to carry that. You see, when we talk about ideal and real, there is this massive gap in the middle. And Jesus says he is the one that will come to close that gap. He will stretch out his hands and he will hold on to the ideal. He will say, this is God's stand. This is the word. This is what God desires for you and for me. That's the one side. And then on the other side, his grace stretches out to come and pick us up from the messes we've made in our reality. In fact, I believe Jesus is calling you and me to hold on to both to trust God for the ideal for our marriages, for our families, for our children, for every area, even our bigger family, every area of God's word that promises so many good things. God wants us to hold on to that. But on the other side, he wants us to, when things go wrong, to, to go and restore what's broken, to give it and handle it with grace, with his grace, to forgive one another to give each other a second chance. Jesus stands in the middle. I want to end off with these words. When Paul was confronted with his lack, with the gap that he left, God spoke to Paul in this way. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And When it comes to our families, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to embrace his grace. It's sufficient for your family. And that his strength, like he said to Paul, would come to its fullest right when you are weak. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can address you as Father. I come and pray for every family listening to your words, listening to what Paul wrote, all of those radical writings. In Jesus' name, I come and pray that we would embrace the depth of your grace and the greatness of your forgiveness to the full extent.
that we would not lower the standards, but that we would hold on to what you promised and to what you want to give us through Jesus Christ and handle the messes we've made with the same grace that you've given us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.